The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Thank you for leading us to worship, guys. And thank you for those worshiping in the annex for joining us through there. Uh, we come to our last section of First John. And I did think of one announcement that I knew was on my heart that I need to remember to tell you all. If, and that is if you're a member and you have a ministry that you're involved in, because we do things very organically here. We're not very programmatic. We encourage our members to go out and start ministries and invest in the community. If you are ministering and you are going to want the church to, to invest in your ministry financially, now's the time to let us know, to, put it, to consider putting it in the budget. So there's something on our website uh, that is a budget request form. Now's the time so that we can plan properly. So those of you who uh, want to uh, get the church's finances available for your ministry outreach, uh, please go on the website and do it today. It actually was due last week, but uh, we don't want you to miss that opportunity. So put it in the budget now. Well, we're working on First John, and we're down to our next to last message. Our last message will be two weeks from now, and it will be a Lord's Supper service. We'll have the Lord's Supper together as a family, and we'll wrap up this book. But today we come to chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And what has John been doing in this book? Well, if you've been with us, you know that he has been showing us uh, indications of authenticity, if you will. What can we look for in our own lives to determine if, if we're the real deal? Uh, if we really are Christians, if we're really saved, or if we're just a really good counterfeit. Um, and John has been telling us, he's been giving us three indications of authenticity. Number one, he has been saying that the, uh, the church should look at themselves or we should look at ourselves and see if we see faith. Second, he's, going to, he's been saying we should look at our lives and see if we see the holiness of God showing up in our life. And then finally, he says we should be looking at our lives and see if we see the love of God showing up in our relationships. Let me elaborate on two of those and then uh, the, the sermon today will be really elaborating the one of faith. Uh, what we've seen as far as the holiness of God is it doesn't demand perfection. It doesn't mean that you look at your life and if you see sin, you're not a believer. That's not what he taught. Instead, he has said that those who have had uh, the holiness of Christ in them, those who have participated in his holiness, will see over time the holiness of God showing up in their lives. And that holiness, we understand, is the morality, it's the moral obedience of God. And what happens is when Christ comes into your life, he gives you a new heart. The spirit of God gives you a new heart with surprising new desires and new delights. We begin to delight in the word of God and the will of God, and we delight to obey him. And so we start to see over time, sin starting to diminish and the holiness of God and obedience to God start to show up in our life. We're not meriting salvation. It's fruit of that salvation. Because he, by his spirit, has changed us, we now have new delights, new desires to obey him and to walk in his ways. And so if you're wondering if you're genuine or not, if you're authentic, look at your life. It reveals whether your confession is authentic. Do you see the moral holiness of God in your life? Do you see at least you're waging war against sin and desire for growing holiness? And you should see that start to show up 
in your life. Then he also said love. And we have been the last two weeks really looking at that. In particular, we've been defining it with the nuance of forgiveness, especially those who don't deserve forgiveness. And it's been a painful couple of weeks to force us to say, hey, are we like Christ? He forgave us, though we didn't deserve it. Are we willing to forgive others who don't deserve it? If we don't find that in our heart, it should concern us and we should begin to really get serious with the Lord. But what John has been teaching us is if the, if the undeserved, self-sacrificing, self-denying, proactive love of Christ, the forgiving nature of Christ, if we've received that, then it will show up in our lives that we begin to learn with new desires, new delights to bring, to give forgiveness to those, even those who absolutely don't deserve it and aren't even asking for it. In fact, they're still taking pleasure in hating our guts. Jesus says, if I'm in you, we're going to learn to forgive because in forgiving there is life and reconciliation, restoration and hope. And so do you see that starting to show up in your life? Are you waging war to see that brought about? Well, those are indications that should give you assurance. John wants us to have assurance of our salvation. He wants us to know. He says, I write these things that you may know. I want you to know you have eternal life. And so we've been challenged to look at our lives. And what do our lives say about our confession of faith? Because it's easy to confess faith, but... Do our lives validate that confession? And that confession is where he goes today. It's kind of a final culminating uh, teaching on faith. When we say one, one evidence or one indication that you are authentic is that you have faith in Jesus. Well, what exactly does that mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, today we see it is particularly related to having faith in God's testimony about Jesus. That's where John goes today. He says, look, God has testified about Jesus. Now, what you do with that testimony is crucial. And so today we're going to look at the nature of God's testimony about Jesus. And then we're going to look at the very purpose of God's testimony. And finally, the benefits of God's testimony. Let me ask the Lord to help us have faith this morning. Lord, our desire is that you move powerfully in our hearts today, that every heart here that is riddled with fleshly and sinful desires, that you will penetrate our hearts and you will grant us faith to believe your testimony about Jesus so that we may enjoy the benefits of your testimony. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look first at the nature of God's testimony. I'm getting this in verses 6 through 9 where John writes this. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood. Well, let me start there. stop there. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so where are we getting this? John is testifying about the Son of God. How do I know? Well, in verse 5 from the previous week, John says, those who overcome are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he goes on to verse 6 where we are today, saying, and this is the one who came by water and blood. So John is emphasizing the point that our faith concerning Jesus is regarding God's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 9, it's God's testimony. He says, if we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. 
And then in verse, he goes on following. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So believing the testimony of men hinges on the witnesses of two or three coming into agreement. Anytime you're listening to a testimony, if all the witnesses are in complete disagreement, you discredit it. John has been saying in the book of 1 John, you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God because the apostles all saw him, touched him, listened to him, saw his miracles, listened to the authority of his teaching, and they were first-hand eyewitnesses. And they all agreed that Jesus was the Son of God who died, but he rose again. Believe me, believe the testimony of men, believe the apostles. And now he's saying, but... That's great, but this is God's testimony. God's testimony to you about Jesus is that he is the son of God. So if you will believe the testimony of men about something because two or three witnesses are in agreement, he says, well, God's testimony and two or three witnesses are in perfect agreement that Jesus is the son of God. So he's arguing from lesser to greater. If you'll believe the apostles' testimony, surely you must believe God himself and what God has said about Jesus. So what has God said about Jesus? We've already seen, continuing from verse 5, he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. This is what God's point about Jesus is this is what the Christmas message is all about this better be what we are teaching our children Christmas is all about that this baby born of a virgin in a manger was God in flesh this was the son of God and that's what John is saying if you want to know if you are a believer and you you understand that I've said that you must have faith, when I tell you you must have faith, what I'm saying you must have faith in is that what God said about Jesus is true, that he is the son of God. In verse 6, he says he's the son of God who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear Jesus Christ, I think if you're like me, most of the time you think that's just his last name. Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. But that's not it. That's a title. That is uh, the anointed. Jesus Christ. Christ in Greek means anointed. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the anointed king of God's kingdom. He is the promised one whom God promised to send. The whole Old Testament story is the story of God's deliverer. The seed of a woman born of Abraham, born of David, will come and be the savior of the world, the king of God's kingdom. And the New Testament declares his name is Jesus. And so that is God's testimony about Jesus, that he is the Christ. In particular, he is the Christ who came. Well, where did he come from? What was he doing? Why did he come? He is the one who came. John 1, 1, the same author in his gospel. These two books work in parallel. Gospel of John and the, the epistle, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They work in conjunction. You go to the gospel and see what John said in John 1, 1. Many of you can quote this, especially at Christmas time. And here's what John says about where he came from and where he came to. In the beginning, this is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life 
And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father. Full of grace and truth. So this is God's testimony about the baby born in a manger. That before he was born in the manger, he existed eternally as God. And that all of creation, the animals in the manger, came through him. That he is the creator. There is no distinction between he and God. He is God. He's the eternal existing life source that gives us life and breath. That in his voice, he spoke creation into existence. That's who this baby in the manger is. He is God eternally existing and he enfleshed himself. That's what the incarnation is. It's God, the divine being, the eternal God of the universe, enfleshed himself. He came to earth. He took on flesh without losing or diminishing or compromising his full deity. That's the story of Christmas, Luke 1. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Notice the careful attention to the genealogy. This is one from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. But he was born to a virgin to a woman virgin named Mary. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation is this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Human, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Christmas message is that the child born to Virgin Mary in the manger is that child is the Son of God. What an amazing message. God's testimony is clear. Jesus is God who enfleshed himself and he came to earth on mission and he did it through a virgin named Mary. He is fully God and fully man. Now let's look at the three witnesses that he works through about this testimony. The water, the blood, and the spirit. In verse 6, John says, Jesus came by water and blood. To understand this very intriguing passage, I'm sure many of you like me are going, what is this all about? 
John is correct. John Stott is correct in saying that the Greek sentence structure requires a very specific interpretation, which quote makes water and blood both historical experiences through which he passed and witnesses, in some sense, to his divine human person. So what Stott is saying here is when you try to figure out what the blood, water, spirit means, the blood and water piece could be several things. In John 3, the, the water is used by the same author in John 3 to say to just speak about being born of a woman. But it doesn't seem that's where John's going here, though that's where I thought he was going. When you study it, you, you look at what he says specifically. He uses a past tense historical verb, say he came by water and blood. And from the context, the, the whole point is his coming by water and blood testifies to the fact that he is the divine son of God. So once you get that, you understand what to look for in water and blood. So you help me think through this. What water and what blood might he be talking about that testifies to the fact that Jesus is the son of God? His water baptism and his blood on the cross. And so you go and you look, and sure enough, in Luke 3, 22, God's testimony about Jesus, he says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so this is a perfect picture at the water where God declares you're the son of God, Jesus, the son of God. And then what does Jesus say at the cross? The last words, it is finished. His mission has been accomplished. And so I think the baptismal water scene where he is declared by God publicly, the son of God. And at the cross, we see him saying it is finished, which the cross always includes the whole gospel where he's died, buried and rose again, where it proved as John, as Paul says in Romans that he rose with declaration of great power as the son of God. And so what John is doing is saying, listen, Jesus was born. Yes, he's human, but it is clear from start to finish that he was on a mission. God from heaven who just entered into flesh without losing divinity. And he lived the perfect life. His divinity was only declared at the baptism and at the, at the finish of his ministry, his death, burial and resurrection, that God has been on a mission. He is God who came out of heaven into earth, into flesh in order to save sinners from their sin. He's not just a man. He's the son of God. He's the God man, the divine human. And that's what he's saying. That's who Jesus, that's who John is saying. God, God is saying Jesus is. God is testifying that he was the son of God and he's testified through his baptism and through his work on the cross. Now, why is John making this emphasis? He's probably combating a very specific heresy. Later in historical documents, later in the church, there was still a lot of wrestling with who Jesus is and the divine human nature. It's not easy stuff to figure out, but thank God we've had a whole history of church historians and theologians wrestling these things and have made very clear statements about the fact that you cannot give up either. He is divine. He is human. He is the God who took on flesh. He was always divine human his entire life. But there was a heresy that developed that said, no, he wasn't divine when he was born. He was only divine when the Spirit came came upon him at the baptism. 
And John affirms, yes, he was divine at the water. But verse 4, he says, but not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. You see, the heresy said that Jesus was not God. He was not divine when he died on the cross. For how could God die on the cross? And John's saying, if you don't understand that he was divine from beginning to end, you have nothing of a gospel. He writes this way to make clear that Jesus was divine his entire life. He was divine in heaven and he merely enfleshed himself through the birth. His entire life, he was divine. At his baptism, he was divine. During his death, he was divine. During his burial, he was divine. And he rose from the grave proving he was divine. This is God's testimony about Jesus This is what you must know and believe to be authentic. You cannot tinker with this message. See, we still wrestle with the same heresy today. Only it's presented from intelligentsia that surely you don't believe this. I mean, I believe God. I believe all these good things about Jesus And Jesus was a great prophet. But really, the divine son of God who died and buried and rose again, this is not empirically proven and it can't be believed. You must believe many good things, but you can't believe this. And it's all presented as a Christian testimony under the the umbrella of loving God and being Christian. And John is saying, if you don't have Jesus from divine, divine from beginning to end, if you don't understand Jesus was just the enfleshing of God with humanity from beginning to end, then you don't have Jesus and you don't have eternal life. You cannot tinker with this message. So this leaves us with the spirit, water, blood, and spirit. In verse 6, John says, it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. Here John is speaking about the Spirit as a person. The person, the Spirit testifies. This is the idea, he's personified. A person gives testimony. Well, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit himself, he testifies. God the Father has testified. The Son testifies. The Spirit testifies. You have three persons. In fact, this is so similar that some have tried to make the previous passages say this. But but this is a different point. The Spirit of God witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the divine Son of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, righteousness, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God enables us to believe this and see this and put our whole hope and faith in Jesus as the one born as a human, but was divine, the divine human, divine human son of God. John doesn't go into great detail. He just simply says in verse 7, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and they are in agreement. The point is, case closed. Don't, don't argue with this. There's been three witnesses, and the, it's settled. God has made it clear. Jesus is Son of God. Don't mess with that message. Amen. When you think about your life, think about your salvation, 
You think about Jesus and you think about your faith. Have you owned it? As hard as it may be to believe. Or has your intellect and your pride prevented you from believing? Perhaps that's why he came that way. Into a humble, ridiculous manger, a trough. I mean, who does that? Maybe it's just to make the foolish wise and the wise foolish, as he says in the scriptures. Okay, so that's what God has testified about Jesus. But what's the purpose of God testifying this? We see in verses 9 and 10, if we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this. He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has received the testimony in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. In these verses, we see the purpose of God's testimony is not just that we would believe some set of facts about what God has said, that, yeah, I guess that's what God said. Now, the purpose of God testifying about Jesus is that we would believe in Jesus, that we would put our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence, that we would bank Everything on Jesus. When we stand before God the Father, and He says, Why should I let you into heaven? We don't say, Well, I think God sent him and I've been a good Christian. I just see him going. Well, okay, I, I, I went to church, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Jesus! Is my only hope. I'm rotten. And I got no right to be here God. But I'm taking you at your word. You said Jesus was a son of God. And I believed you. And he died on the cross to take my sins. And I'm banking only in his death on the cross. Well done. My good and faithful servant. That's the Christmas message. That's why the world stops. At Christmas. Because that baby born in a manger is the son of God who enfleshed himself in order to die for you. The divine human shed divine blood so that humans can participate in the divine. His purpose of testifying is that we would believe in and have him and that testimony in us. For Jesus to be of any value to you. For Jesus to have any benefits to you. He must be fully God and fully man and nothing less. If Jesus is not divine human, then there is not an acceptable sacrifice for sin. If Jesus was just a historical figure, a great prophet, a powerful teacher who died on the cross then he is to be pitied. 
There is no satisfactory sacrifice for God other than God himself. Only God can bear your sins and mine. Only God can pardon your sins and mine. If there is no incarnation, then there is no assurance of salvation. If you accept this message, there are many benefits which we'll look at in just a second. But if we reject this message, if we just slightly alter this message, John does what John does. And he says, you make God a liar. Because that's not what God said about Jesus. God didn't say Jesus was just a good man. God didn't say Jesus was just a great prophet. God didn't just say Jesus was a miracle worker. God said Jesus is God. And if you say he's anything other than God, then you're saying God's a liar. It's not a sign of intelligence. It's a sign of foolishness to mock God and call him a liar. John will not play the political game, political correctness. He says, you either accept what God said about Jesus or you are standing against God himself. But those who receive and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins, there are many great benefits, two of which we look at from verses 10 through 12. Again, verse 10 says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him out, made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. In these verses, we see two benefits of God's testimony. For those who believe or receive, eternal life is their gift and assurance is their gift. And notice they are gifts. They're not merited. They're not earned. They are gifts that he gives to those who believe what God has said. About Jesus. The first we'll look at is assurance. He says in verse 10 the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit is being implied here. John seems to be referring to what, John, what Paul says in Romans 8 16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There is great blessed assurance that believers enjoy. And that is my goal for every believer here. Not that we're riddled with doubt and wondering, but to say, if you believe God's word about Jesus, you're saved and the spirit of God lives within you and the spirit of God testifies, yes, you're mine. That's a great gift. But obvious, the most important gift is not only the assurance of eternal life, but actual eternal life. Eternal life that begins immediately. A participation in the life that existed eternally. 
It's a participation in that very divine nature that is eternal life. God is eternal life. God took on flesh that we might have eternal life, participate in his eternal life. He died, he buried, he rose again. And those who believe what God said about him join in that eternal existence. And it begins immediately. Verse 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. How? By enfleshing it. And this life is in his son. Verse 12, he who has the son, notice the possession. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. If you understand Jesus is the son of God, you believe and receive, you have his eternal life. If you question and mess with and talk about and debate and think about and talk about little details, you don't have it. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. He so clearly articulates this that you cannot have life apart from the Son and you cannot have the Son apart from life. If you have Him, you have it all. So let's pull all this together. Eternal life is a gift. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God gives this gift only to those who believe His testimony concerning Jesus The testimony that Jesus is the divine son of God who came from heaven on a saving mission onto earth, entering through a human, baptized in water at that baptism, declared publicly, this is the son of God, which is what he said when he told Mary, you're going to have a child. He will be the son of God. He lived a sinless life. And he gave his divine human lifeblood on the cross so that anyone who trusts only in that lifeblood participates as a human in the divine nature of God, which is eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the Christmas message. That's what... Authentic believers believe in. My prayer is that this Christmas that we teach our children this message and that we teach our grandchildren this message. But in order to teach that message, we have to believe it ourselves first. I don't know if you're a believer or not. I don't know if you're authentic or if you're a great counterfeit. I can't decide that. But John has given us each the tools to determine that for yourselves, for ourselves. Each one of us needs to do business with God. God, am I authentic? Ask yourself in the presence of God... Lord, am am I just a good counterfeit or am I believing only in resting and trusting only in the work of the God-man who died on the cross for my sins? If so, then praise the Lord. 
And then you will see that evidenced more and more in this journey called the Christian life as you learn with the help of brothers and sisters to love the way he loved and to live a holy life the way he enables us to live. That's my prayer for every person here today. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you for your clear message in the scriptures. I thank you that you came to earth through a virgin woman. being declared at your baptism very clearly the Son of God who took on flesh, completing your mission of salvation, the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the divine human shed divine blood as the sacrifice for human sin so that those who trust only in your blood receive the divine nature. And Lord, may it be true of everyone here that no one leaves here today without participating in your gift of eternal life. I pray that during this song we will come to the altar and do business with you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.